Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It's Sunday, January 29th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm joined today by diplomatic correspondent Laser Berman and political analyst Khaviv Retigor. It has been a difficult, tragic weekend, beginning with the terror shooting in Jerusalem's Neve Yaakov neighborhood outside a synagogue on Friday night as a Palestinian terrorist shot and killed seven people, three of whom were buried late Saturday night. The youngest victim of the shooting, 14-year-old Asher Natan, was buried in the Jewish cemetery on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. On Saturday morning, two Israeli men were shot and wounded by a 13-year-old East Jerusalem Palestinian outside of Jerusalem's old city. On Saturday night, a Palestinian gunman opened fire at a restaurant near Jericho near Almog Junction, and a Palestinian man with a handgun attempted to enter the North and West Bank settlement of Kidumim before midnight. He was shot by a security guard. The police have raised a terror alert to the highest level. The security cabinet met Saturday night and have decided to strengthen the settlements. And at the same time on Saturday night, protests did go ahead against the planned judicial reforms in Tel Aviv and other cities, but with a far quieter tone and smaller crowds. We're going to discuss all of that. Before we jump into it, we're going to take a quick break. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Okay, Chaviv, let's get started on this. At the security cabinet meeting last night, public security minister Itamar Ben-Gvir tried to look very tough on terror. What is he saying and what do we think is going to come of that? Right. Itamar Ben-Gvir has a problem and it's an important problem for what's going to happen going forward on the ground in terms of the level of violence, in terms of the Israeli response. Um, in terms of where this might be going. Itamar Ben-Gvir uh, doesn't really have a base, or he has a, a base of voters, but it's very, very small, maybe 1%, maybe 2% on, on the best days. And he needs to deliver on the thing that actually got him into a position of influence, the thing that actually drew some voters to his banner in the last election, which was growing Israeli fears of essentially coming violence and and especially violence within Israel the May 2021 violence um, of Arab mobs in places like Lod um, inspired instigated by a, a handful of religious leaders uh, who are affiliated with Hamas or agree with Hamas at the very least 
And and there was the Israeli response to that, the Israeli Jewish response in places like Lod, and the general population response to that was a very sharp, um, I would say, uh, increase in in inter-ethnic tensions within Israel, and that drove uh, a couple of percentage points of votes to Ben Gvir, and he is now the minister in charge of the police. The problem is he also has very little experience except in posturing and in delivering these speeches about how we have to take a tough and firm hand. And so we saw overnight uh, an, a performance by Ben Gvir that has caused tremendous amount of worry, not on the left, but within the government, within the right-wing government, including with Benjamin Netanyahu. Ben Gvir gave a press conference this morning in which he accused the Attorney General, Gali Baharav Miara, of holding up his demand to uh, seal the home of the family of the shooter in Neve Yaakov. He said that the Shin Bet was on board, the army was on board, the police were on board, um, the National Security Council were on board, the Prime Minister was on board, everybody agreed, and lo and behold, we're all stuck waiting for the permission from the Attorney General. Now, this is a, a public statement that feeds into, um, of course, the government's planned reforms, which include judicial reforms and legal reforms, which include weakening the Attorney General general's position, and he he raised his voice. In other words, it was a six-minute press conference in a parking lot, I believe the parking lot of the Knesset, to some media that surrounded him, in which he essentially yelled uh, that everyone's on board, and we're going to do this tough thing, and we're going to stop the terrorism, and who's preventing it? He said, this is terrible, this can't be, this hurts the citizens of Israel. He turned to the attorney general in front of the cameras and said, you're also a citizen of Israel, there's no reason to hold this up. And then very, very quickly, uh, we got statements from both the security services and the attorney general's office, in which it turned out that, it, in fact, they had turned in a very preliminary legal opinion and then had, had sent the attorney general more materials, and the attorney general is moving very fast. And in a statement from the attorney general's office, she said she is looking for all the legal tools the government needs to fulfill its policy, which is, of course, her job. And it doesn't appear that there actually was a problem here, or certainly other people in government don't think that there really was a problem. And so what we seem to have had was a performance in which, in the first serious test of his of his cool composure, of his ability to work seriously on the ground in real time with a real, you know, he's the minister in charge of the police, of law enforcement, of counterterrorism. Many counterterror units are under his purview, not all of them, but many of the most significant ones. And his only contribution to the discussion seems to have been to stand up in front of the cameras and shout about the attorney general. Ben-Gvir hasn't made the mental switch between being a, a campaigner which he has been his entire life, and being the guy in power and in charge. He wants to do four things. He wants to destroy the homes of the terrorists. He wants to increase the number of the access of Israelis to firearms. The Israelis are fairly well armed as a civilian population, but uh, the firearms are also very, very tightly controlled. Um, so we're sort of we have a little bit of the arm. We're not as well armed as Americans at all, not even close, but we're much better armed, for example, than any European country uh, in terms of our civilian population. But those firearms, even to the point where the government controls the supply of bullets, and you have to actually explain where every bullet disappeared to if you go to shoot those bullets. Uh, and he wants to loosen some of those restrictions to increase the number of firearms in Israelis' hands. He wants to push forward a law uh, of death penalty for terrorism, a law that the right keeps talking about for many, many decades, not years, decades, uh, but has a problem pushing forward because uh, the Jewish right will have trouble 
carrying out a death penalty against a Jewish terrorist. And of course, there are also Jewish terrorists. And so it's a law that he decided to push forward again, probably as a political posturing. And he wants to uh, advance a police reform that'll establish a National Guard. Nobody's quite sure why. Nobody's quite sure what it means. There hasn't been a public debate on it. We don't have a policy paper that we can read and inform our readers why the public security minister wants to establish a whole new police force uh, beyond the forces that already exist. And so um, Itamar Ben-Gvir has been sitting this out, and he is not running the show. The good news is the Jerusalem police work very fast, the Shin Bet work very fast, they know who these guys were, uh, and they are on the issue. I just want to say one last sentence, which is that it's troubling to not have Ben-Gvir be managing the situation. And the reason it's troubling, or 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 anyone, in other words, Bengvir is the guy who needs to be managing it, but to not have someone in that position. And the reason is that everyone, everyone we talk to, Laser has written about this, and, and, and uh, Palestinian affairs reporters are writing about this, and Palestinian media is discussing this constantly. Everyone expects a wave of violence going forward. They expect, as a bus, it's, uh, you know, potentially dies, and there's a turf war, a, a, a war of succession uh, in Fatah, in the West Bank, and Hamas tries to make its move and take over the West Bank, and Israel tries to suppress the parties in the West Bank that are most antithetical to it. Uh, there's probably going to be waves of terrorism when Palestinian factions inside Palestinian politics compete. One of the ways they compete is by establishing their bona fides, by launching attacks on Israel. And so um, we're looking at a, a coming time of tremendous tremendous violence, a minister of public security who does not appear to understand how to run and manage and contain that violence or that kind of situation. Uh, and Benjamin Netanyahu, I can tell you, uh, is, is, is worried by what he saw over the last day. All of this violence over this weekend followed the nine Palestinians who were killed after a uh, fierce clashes in Jenin on Thursday. And then there were the sorties in Gaza. The Palestinians believe that Israel has pushed them to the wall that this government offers them no horizon, not two states, not one state, uh, 20-something percent of Palestinians want a confederation, it's not clear that that could possibly happen. Uh, they believe that just, you know, a bunch of flat-out racists are in charge and they're going to remain oppressed forever and ever. And so all terror is justified and all terror is Israel's fault. That is a majority opinion right now in the Palestinian public. And so uh, these attacks are justified. When Yair Lapid was briefly interim prime minister, we had a very quick exchange of fire between the IDF and Islamic Jihad. And there were polls in Gaza and in the West Bank of what Palestinians want, Palestinian polls. And what was fascinating was that in the West Bank, 70% wanted Hamas to join the fighting and escalate that war in Gaza. And in Gaza, 30% wanted that. In other words, in Gaza, they wanted a toning down of the violence. They're scared to have more rounds of violence. In the West Bank, they're looking for more violence because of a sense of that siege. Now, this government doesn't offer any response. It doesn't speak to, uh, it doesn't have a message. I'm not, I'm not blaming Israel. I, I, I think that um, I, I have, you know, a lot of complaints about uh, every single faction here. But uh, but this government does say that there won't be a Palestinian state of the sort that the Palestinians want. And um, and in the Palestinian discourse, that is being interpreted as, you know, everything is now justified and we're moving forward with more attacks. What is Ben-Gvir's solution? Is his solution another Operation Defensive Shield like in 2000 when Israelis concluded, you know, the attacks were despite the peace process, despite Israeli withdrawals, because of Israeli withdrawals, a wave of 140 bombings happened in Israel, and that launched an Israeli incursion into West Bank cities and reversal of the Oslo process. 
Is that what Ben Gvir is offering? Is he offering some kind of a reduction in violence through working with Palestinian factions? Benjamin Netanyahu, we know, we know from 12 years of his time in power that he believes the Palestinian Authority is a force for stability and has always tried to sustain it and maintain it. Uh, Betzalus Smotrich and Itama Ben Gvir of the Religious Zionism Faction uh, talk about openly now about toppling it. What does that mean? What comes in its place? What inside Palestinian society uh, offers us a partner to talk to, even just in terms of de-escalation? The simple answer is these are all the big questions. Nobody knows. I can tell you that our listeners will already have been offended by several of the ways I phrase those questions, which is fine. But but everyone's arguing these moral arguments and on the, st- the strategy, the hard sort of where do we want to go? How do we get there? How do we map a path through this violence that either reduces the violence or somehow settles some of these questions? Nobody knows. It looks like this government is running a little bit blind. Okay. Thanks, Khaviv. We're going to take a quick break. When we're back, Laser will fill us in on diplomatic reactions to the wave of violence. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast, For Heaven's Sake, from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll privilege to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. Okay, so Laser... Tell us what you've been hearing and writing up as countries, other countries and diplomats uh, react to the violence, make contact with the government. What are some of the messages we're hearing? In any attack like this, we can expect um, world leaders to condemn it rather forcefully. But last night I spoke to the foreign ministry spokesman, Lior Hayat, and he was quite surprised by the by the intensity of the reactions and some of the countries that actually weighed in. So he says he's nothing, he's never seen um, reactions quite like this before. So of course you have the United States and and, and allies in Europe, um, which you know identified the the, um, the very specifics of the attack. They a lot of countries also tied it into the fact that it happened on International Holocaust Remembrance Day, which I think was especially um, resonant when these countries are talking about. Um, you know, how they have committed in Europe and, and in the West to making sure this never happens again, um, to have Jews slaughtered at a house of worship, I think, was really stunning for them and, and really um, focused some of their responses. So in, in addition to the United States and, and France and the UK, um, Turkey um, came out with a statement that strongly condemned it and, and wished, wished their condolences in countries, Poland, Germany, Sweden, um, basically, um, you know, everyone you would expect in Europe. In the Gulf, which is some place that you know that we look at and we wonder how 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 harsh will this be? So Bahrain 
and the UAE came out with specific condemnations. Interestingly, Saudi Arabia came out with a statement through its foreign ministry. Uh, the statement, Israeli officials were very happy with it, but I think that's putting kind of a positive spin on it. It did not specifically condemn this attack. It, it condemned uh, targeting of civilians, right, which seems to be going both ways, talking about the Janine raid and this attack and called for de-escalation and a peace process that would lead to a two-state solution. So it's something, but it doesn't go as far, uh, surely, as, as other neighbors do that, that Israel has relationships um, with. So I think this is especially frustrating beyond the obvious human cost and, and the tragedy there um, and, and the anger at the violence is that there was a little bit you know, of a spike in concern with Itamar Ben-Gvir's visit to the Temple Mount, it led to a flurry of talks. It led to um, Blinken coming this uh, coming this week. He has an upcoming trip to talk about the status quo, whatever that is, on the Temple Mount. And there was, I think, a feeling in the world that there was enough dialogue with Netanyahu's government that they figured they can keep this under wraps. And now it's really spiraling under control, you know, the worst attack in more than a decade. So I think there's, there's a lot of shock in, on the world stage and there's a lot of concern and this is becoming a priority. And I think we did see that in the reactions. Uh, speaking of the Temple Mount, we had Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu flying to Jordan last week on Tuesday to meet with King Abdullah, first time in four years. And that, of course, uh, some of their conversation presumably was about the Temple Mount and what has been taking place there. What are some of your takeaways from that visit last week? Yeah, so it's very surprising that that happened. It hasn't happened since 2018. The personal relationship between him and King Abdullah really got bad. And if you remember, Netanyahu wanted to make that flight to the UAE ahead of elections, and it was Jordan that shut down the airspace, probably did a favor to the UAE. He didn't want to be dragged into elections in Israel. Um but Jordan and, and Netanyahu certainly do not have a good relationship. Jordan was also very nervous about those annexation plans in the Jordan Valley. It is whenever you talk about Jordan and Israel, it is important to remember that Jordan's legitimacy, the Hashemite uh, family, their legitimacy rests on their ability to uh, protect the Temple Mount, protect the Al-Aqsa Mosque. That's really what it is. This family, until the 1920s, was the guardian, uh, the protector of the two holy cities of Mecca and Medina, and they lost it in war to the Saudis, to the al-Saud family. And what they have left is their custodianship, as they call it, over the Temple Mount um, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And if they are seen as um, unable to protect it from Jewish designs, either on prayer or even building a third temple up there, then they really lose any legitimacy that they once uh, had. So that that position is very important to them. They're not going to, to give up on it. They're always going to insist on it, even when it seems some, somewhat problematic. Um, and, and I think we have to realize that. Again, I've spoken about this in the past, and I'm still working on a piece on this because it's a very complex issue. The status quo is a written arrangement in intra-Christian fights in sites in Jerusalem and Bethlehem. That approach and that terminology has been applied to other sites, including the Western Wall and Rachel's tomb, but it has never officially in writing been applied to the Temple Mount. The police don't have any written document about what the status quo is. It's an approach and it's something that changes all the time. It's not a static uh, arrangement. It's a moving, uh, unclear, I think intentionally vague um, um, terminology 
to describe a general approach, but it's not like there is any written set of rules um, that has not changed about what the Temple Mount arrangements are. But it's just, it's, it's uh, when you talk about maintaining the status quo, it's saying we don't want to make any major changes. And you're basically saying that we're not going to allow Jewish prayer up there and we're not going to do anything drastic in terms of access. But of course, Israel has changed um, its police present and, it's, and has blocked as- access on the Temple Mount many times. So that, that is certainly a change in whatever the status quo is. So it's important to remember that as well. And of course, we've got Netanyahu and his public security minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir, who very much wants to see things change up there. Yes, that's really what makes uh, Jordan quite nervous. I don't think Netanyahu is going to allow that. And that's certainly what he told um, um, King Abdullah in that meeting that he is committed again to this quote-unquote status quo. But that means he's not going to let Ben-Gvir and the people that have publicly advocated that before coming into office to uh, start allowing Jewish prayer. Even though there's a, a good uh, on principle claim to be made that, you know, Israel has a law about religious freedom and Muslims can do personal prayer at, at the Western Wall, but obviously the price is, 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 would be quite high if that happened, and, and that's why Netanyahu uh, is adamant that he will not allow that and told that to King Abdullah, and I assume we'll tell that to Blinken this week as well. Okay. And Laser, one last thing. You were in Brussels last week with President Isaac Herzog, who met with Philippe, King of the Belgians, part of a two-day trip that was included an address to the European Parliament to mark International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Give us a little bit of a feeling of what that was like. The beginning of the trip, um, which was really a small part, was the bilateral, which was Israel and Belgium. The trade relationship is very strong. Belgium is really a hotbed, especially in universities and NGOs and the like. Um, even down to kindergartens of anti-Israel sentiment. Uh, I spoke to people there in the know who said that these NGOs are working with little kids to, to you know, to, to uh, tie them to the Palestinian cause. It's really a, a challenging situation. Um, and President Herzog also made a visit to the Jewish community, to a school where he had a wonderful interactions with the kids and to the great synagogue of Brussels. And I think that was important for the community to have that that you know the, the the president of Israel come there to strengthen them, and I, that was really appreciated. The main part of the trip, as you mentioned, was this uh, address and, and these events around International Holocaust Remembrance Day, um, which European leaders, um, the head of the EU Parliament, um, the head of the EU Commission, you know, they all spoke very strongly how important it was to remember. What kind of graded on me was the fact that they brought it. You know, therefore we must stand up to the Russians in Ukraine. That's the lesson we must learn. You know, we must, we must act when there are dictators who are threatening civilians. But that's problematic because it's, it takes a focus away from the Jewish victims. It takes a focus away from the Jewish story. And in my eyes, it almost says, okay, if it was just about the Jewish story and the lessons we have to learn there, it's not enough for these Europeans, many countries of whom were in some ways perpetrators. So, um, you know, I think that's not the right way to remember it, especially on the day of. On the day of, I think the conversation should be about, um, you know, how we make sure these countries do not do this to Jewish communities again, how important it is to make sure that Jews can defend themselves in Israel, um, and that that they are committed to fighting anti-Semitism and, and enables, enabling the flourishing of Jewish life in their own countries and not start talking about um, things like Russia and Ukraine, which are, are, you know, it's clear who the good guys are, but it's more complex than, than the Holocaust. And uh, certainly when Ukrainians were perpetrators and, and the Red Army defeated the Nazis in many ways. So uh, that certainly graded on me and, and hopefully many others as well. Okay, thanks very much for that, Laser. And Chaviv, thank you as well for your comments. Thank you, Chaviv. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for your comments today and uh, wishing everyone a good week. Shavua Tov. 
Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.